0: The Pope is reforming the Vatican, but how? And we'll discuss the consecration of Russia and Ukraine to the Immaculate Heart of Mary this week. Father Gerald Murray is here with analysis. President Joe Biden meets with NATO, G7, and EU leaders in Brussels as Russia's invasion of Ukraine enters its fourth week. Journalist and global affairs analyst Michael Bossacue joins us from Lviv with an update. New York Times best-selling author Mitch Albom explores faith and belief in his latest novel The Stranger in the Lifeboat. The World Over begins right now. Welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over, an important show for you tonight. If you'd like to comment, send us a tweet. i at Raymond Arroyo. Lots to cover. Let's get right to it. Pope Francis has issued a long-awaited reform of the Vatican Curia, and all eyes are on Rome this week for the pope's historic consecration of Russia and Ukraine to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Joining me now with analysis of these stories and more, a member of the papal posse, canon lawyer and priest of the Archdiocese of New York, Father Gerald Murray. Father, I want to start with the Pope's consecration of Russia and Ukraine to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. It's going to happen at St. Peter's Basilica on Friday, March 25th. What is the significance of this consecration? Why is it
1: needed now? I need it obviously because of Russia invading Ukraine and then. As the Pope used the word massacre, they're basically massacring the Ukrainian people while they destroy Mm -hmm. all the buildings. And uh, so this is a plea to heaven through our Blessed Mother uh, to bring an end to this aggression, to bring an end to this warfare. And that's precisely Our Lady of Fatima's message that she wants peace in the world, but we have to turn to God Mm -hmm. through her immaculate heart. Uh, Father, Pope Francis has asked the world's bishops, all Catholics, to assemble
0: in their parishes on Friday and pray this act of consecration for Russia and Ukraine. Tell me, how is this consistent with the request to the children in Fatima in 1917?
1: Yes. Well, Sister Lucia said that this was one of the secrets that uh, was revealed to her by Our Lady. And in fulfillment of it, uh, this— if we didn't consecrate the world then Russia would spread her errors and there'd be great violence warfare so now this is a plea to our lady to intercede with God as she requested to end this warfare it's important because it's a sign of Pope Francis's dedication to our lady and he's teaching the whole Catholic world this is what we need to do ask God to stop mm-hmm. this that Russia stop being the aggressor here and that the Ukrainians be restored mm-hmm. to their freedom Uh, and Mm -hmm. the rightful place as an independent country.
0: I want to read people a portion of the prayer that the Vatican has sent to bishops around the world for this consecration. It reads, Mother of God and our Mother, to the Immaculate Heart, we solemnly entrust and consecrate ourselves, the Church, and all humanity, especially Russia and Ukraine. Accept this act that we carry out with confidence and love, grant that war may end and peace spread throughout the world. The fiat that arose from your heart opened the doors of history. To the Prince of Peace. We trust that through his—through your heart, peace will dawn once more. In 1984, uh, Father Jerry, Pope John Paul II consecrated Russia and the world, but not specifically Russia, to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Now, Pope Francis is consecrating all humanity, along with Russia and Ukraine. But in Fatima, the Virgin Mary asks that Russia be consecrated to her Immaculate Heart. Now you've seen the online chatter that it should only be Russia, etc. But uh, uh, your thoughts on this, I, I, and I'll share my own in a second.
1: Yes. No. This is absolutely in fulfillment of what Our Lady asked. Uh, remember that the Pope says, especially, he says solemnly consecrate uh, to name uh, humanity as a whole, and then say especially Russia and Ukraine. This is a sign that she's he's doing exactly what Our Lady is asking.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and people should recall, especially those online, Ukraine, in 1917, was part of Russia. So, it's not outside the lines to uh, entrust both to uh, Our Lady's care. Uh, It it is within the lines of what I think was requested here. Archbishop Athanasius Schneider, by the way, was interviewed by 1 Peter 5 this week about the consecration and the previous ones. And he said, similar to what you're saying, Father, in comparison to the wording Of the two previous acts of consecration made by Pius XII and Pope John Paul II, the words and form of the consecration that will be used by Pope Francis on March 25th more clearly express the requests of Our Lady of Fatima. Pope Francis has even added the words solemnly to consecrate, uh, an expression lacking in the formulas of 1952 and 1984. Do you agree with the archbishop's assessment here?
1: Yeah, he's right. This is uh, in fulfillment, and we really have to disregard what I consider to be baseless and speculative uh, notions that unless you say precisely what the, uh, those uh, authors are claiming in different online sites, that this is not a valid consecration, not at all. The Pope is doing what Our Lady asked, and we pray now that mm-hmm. the results will be grace and the, and the arrival of peace and the end of this horrible, mm-hmm. horrible, aggressive war that Russia is doing.
0: Yeah, and there was a report this week that uh, Pope Benedict is even uh, joining Pope Francis uh, from his residence in this act of consecration. So it's the whole—it's really the whole church. What of the first Saturday devotion request, which was part of the original uh, request of Our Lady of Fatima, what of that portion of it?
1: Yes, well, penitential uh, practices for five Saturdays. That's in addition to it, it doesn't uh, have to be mentioned here at this consecration or for the consecration to fulfill what Our Lady asks. So it's a good practice, mm-hmm. but it's uh, him not mentioning it doesn't change anything. OK. I want to move on to another big story. Pope Francis released his long-awaited
0: Vatican reform this week. Now, Father, as you, you know better than most, uh, we were together in St. Peter's Square when the pope was elected, and part of Francis's mandate, if you will, was to reform the curia. It's taken nearly a decade. Um, proclaiming the gospel is the name of this new constitution on the Roman curia, the central uh, Vatican's administration. Uh, It gives laity, including women, the opportunity to oversee major Vatican
1: offices. Father Jerry, your thoughts as you read this? Well, I guess the first thought is, referring back to that St. Peter's uh, experience, the cardinals, before the last papal election, I think they were more focused on reform in the sense of personnel, who's occupying the offices, and and what they're going to be doing, There were a lot of corruption. It wasn't based on the legal arrangements, basically on the trustworthiness Mm -hmm. of some people. But the legal arrangements are very important, and this document uh, in many ways is a radical departure from the previous uh, arrangements Mm -hmm. of Pastor Bonus, which was the document issued by Pope uh, John Paul II, and that has to do with questions we can... uh, Yes, by John Paul. That has to do with questions that we can look at regarding lay people involved in church governance, the nature of uh, the papal offices, uh, the dicasteries, formerly called congregations. Uh, I note, is an interesting fact, the the Latin language is no longer specified as the language of the church as it was in the previous Constitution. Mm. And then Opus Dei, which is a personal prelature, was formerly under the Congregation for Bishops. That's been moved now to the Congregation for Clergy, which is a curious place for it to be because that's not how it was conceived of when it was uh, approved by St. John Paul II. As being under clergy, hmm. really is conceived as part of the hierarchical structure of the church with a prelate and a clergy and then laity who are uh, working with those clergy. So that's a big right. change, too.
0: Yeah, uh, expanding the applicant pool to the laity at the Roman Curia, it does raise questions of Canon 129, which says it is those in sacred orders who are qualified for the power of governance. At a press conference on Monday, canon law expert Father Girlanda uh, addressed the question of Canon 129, saying it is not ordination but the canonical mission that counts. Does Canon Law 129 need to be amended?
1: It will be if they start, I uh, want to put lay people into uh, vicarious roles of governance. So let me explain this. Uh, briefly, yeah. uh, when ordination carries with it uh, three powers, uh, to be a priest, a prophet, and, and a ruler. So, in other words, uh, the mission of the priest is not simply to offer the sacraments. He's also supposed to teach with priestly hmm. authority, and he's supposed to govern the faithful if he's in a position of authority, such as a pastor or a bishop. So, now, uh, Father Gilanda, and he was one of my professors in Canon Law School. He's a good oh. canonist, but he had some notions that I didn't agree with, and this one is that uh, the Pope can delegate to a lay person his authority of governing the Church by giving him a role, by giving lay people roles in the Roman Curia, which they will essentially be ordering people around uh, with the Pope's authority. But in really, in the Church, the shepherds are the ones set apart by holy orders, and even mm-hmm. if a shepherd such as a cardinal in a congregation is operating as a vicar of the Pope. He's qualified to receive that vicarious power because he's already a shepherd. You don't become a shepherd simply because the pope delegates you to act like one. So this is an area where there's going to be a Mm. lot of debate, and uh, it could cause some problems because you'll have, for instance, you'll have, let's say, a lay woman, head of a Vatican office, issuing a binding decree on people, and they'll say, no, wait a minute. In the church, I obey the bishops. I don't obey lay people. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and say, what does what, what
0: does a sacred order mean? I mean, it does it does invite that whole question there. Uh, if you're going to suddenly put lay people in these positions of authority within the Vatican administration, administering to itself, the document was nearly 10 years in the making, as you know. It was drafted by top cardinals chosen by the Pope, but it was published only in Italian. Father, it was not given in advance to Holy See journalists. Why do you think it wasn't translated like nearly every other document issued by the Vatican?
1: That's a very good question. You can presume, one answer is they were rushing to get it out, which is hard to understand mm-hmm. since it took so long. Uh, they, yes, they usually announce a press conference with the presentation of the document and then the document itself in the various languages. Instead, it, the Italian version hit on uh, St. Joseph's Day, and then the press conference mm-hmm. was on Monday. Uh, I think All it's, right. given the length of time, they should have had the major language translations available, And then now the question becomes, you know, what is the authoritative version uh, of this document? Is it going to be the Italian or wait for the Latin? We'll wait to see on that.
0: Hmm. Well, there's no doubt it was hastily assembled. Uh, There's a specific reference to the extraordinary form in the document. Now, the online Italian version has already been amended to say liturgical books in use before the reforms. Um, now, Bishop Marco Melino, who is secretary of Pope Francis's Council of Cardinals, at first called the use of extraordinary form a
1: typo that should be corrected. Father, your reaction to all of this? And where are we now? Right. Well, see, this—it was back in July of 2021 that the pope— put an end to the use of the term extraordinary form. He said there's only one mm. uh, form of the lex orandi of the Roman Rite, and that is the, the mass of Pope Paul VI. Uh, this is a hard statement to understand because the extraordinary form is still allowed. Uh, you know, for mm. that expression, though, to appear in this document meant that somebody didn't do their assigned job, which is to make sure the final product conformed to the actual curial usages at the present moment. So. Mm. Uh, um, It's—at least uh, we know that uh, the extraordinary form, if it's not called that, is still allowed uh, with restrictions. And uh, we hope those restrictions will be mitigated over time. Yeah. No, no, uh, some some editor did not do their
0: job or do it well. Uh, One of the changes within the Roman Curia is. There will no longer be congregations or councils, but every Vatican department will now be called a dicastery. I I guess this is to further confuse the laity all around the world so they don't know what they're talking about anymore. For example, the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith is now the dicastery for the Doctrine of Faith. First of all, why does this matter to governance, Father, and why does it matter at all to the Catholic at home?
1: Well, this is important, and people might not understand it because of what language means, but congregation Mm -hmm. in the usage in the canon law up to this point meant an assembly of bishops and cardinals who advised the Mm. pope on the specific matter that their congregation was responsible for. So the congregation for the doctrine of the faith, responsible, obviously, for defending the faith. So in the Roman Curia, you essentially had bishops aiding the bishop of Rome, who was the chief shepherd, the Vicar of Christ. So this was very much the pastors of the church working together, sort of like auxiliary bishops working with a diocesan bishop, as we have here in New York and many places. Now, uh, there are no congregations, so there are still, though, members of the dicastery, and a member means those people who are in charge of it working with the prefect. The prefect is the person in charge. Ah. Uh, But then there's this group which will meet with him periodically to decide important matters. Now prefects can be lay people, Uh, and as we discussed earlier, enjoying vicarious power of the Pope. Again, this is really not in line with the emphasis on collegiality among the bishops and co-responsibility for the universal church, because I mean, conceivably, you could have a congregation where the prefects are lay layperson, and then a majority of the members are also laypeople. And then in what sense are the shepherds of the church actually working together with the pope in that situation? It becomes very obscure. Father, I know people at home are asking, what does dicastery even mean? It's a technical term for department. It's, it's, it's been used in the Roman Curia for a long time, but it's a, right. it's a shorthand word it, it used to be called sacred congregations, by the way. Uh, that was done away with by Pope John Paul II, regrettably, I think, because it was meant to highlight that the work there is sacred, being carried out by sacred pastors. But now we're getting mm. to more bureaucratic language, which—the it, it, dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith doesn't have the same ring to it.
0: Yeah. No, pretty soon it'll be called the Committee uh, of the Doctrine of Faith. Uh, the, the, the first dicastery of the Curia is now the dicastery for evangelization. The Holy Father will become the prefect of that dicastery. What does this Constitution say about the direction the Holy Father means to take the Vatican? Is it more pastoral? Is that what this is reaching for?
1: Yeah, that is, that he wants the mission of the church to be spreading the gospel, and that's quite clear, and that's why he says the preaching of the faith, which is what evangelization means, to make the gospel known, is the first duty. Uh, and I can't disagree with him that that's true. But what I would say is, that's mm-hmm. the, already the mission of the congregation of the doctrine of the faith, because they are guaranteeing mm-hmm. the purity of the preaching of the mission and bringing the gospel to people. So, um, it, it, traditionally, the congregation for evangelization uh, was responsible for mission territories. So it was more responsible right. for management of how dioceses, uh, new dioceses, and mission territories were arranged. Uh, but now this congregation, this rather this dicastery, will try to promote new ways of bringing the gospel throughout the world, and that's good. Mm-hmm. I can't disagree with that. The doctrine of the faith, yeah. though, I think that really is the primary duty of the pope to to preserve the doctrine uh, from the errors that unfortunately afflict us.
0: Yeah, Father, there's been some uh, opining and and uh, reportage on this document, and they claim that. The Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith, the body that once ensured the fidelity of the teaching across the board in the Church, has been demoted here, beneath the Secretary of State. That doesn't seem very pastoral to me.
1: Well, that's a good objection. Uh, yeah, the, the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith, formerly in the past, was called the Supreme Sacred Congregation. It mm. used to be called in Latin "el supremo," "el supremo." Then, so it mm-hmm. was. Because the first duty of the pope, the first duty of Peter, was to confirm the brethren in the faith. And that's and a particular faith, yeah. responsibility. No other bishop can—bishops can do that for, the, for their own diocese, but no other bishop can do it for the whole world and with the authority mm-hmm. of St. Peter. So, um, yes, the the congregation of Doctrine of Faith, wherever you put it on the uh, you know, chart of organization of the church, still remains the most important and vital congregation, or dicastery, excuse me, because mm-hmm. what else is is huh. what who else stands in the way of error in the church? The Holy See is the one that tells us what the faith means. Yeah. This week, Pope Francis
0: and the president of Ukraine spoke. Father, I want to move on to this. Uh, they, they spoke for the second time. Uh, president Zelensky told the Pope. He welcomes a Vatican mediation and an end to the suffering in his country. Cardinal Parolin, in an interview with EWTN, said the Holy See is ready to negotiate and find a win-win situation. What are the chances of that? Uh, It doesn't seem Russia is all that interested in a peace deal. And uh, the reportage tells us Israel may end up being the broker there.
1: Well, it's good of the pope to want to do that. I applaud that because the pope is a peacemaker. He represents the Prince of Peace. Uh, but we have to have mm-hmm. also a realistic approach to it, which is basically to say this is not a question where Ukraine and Russia are an equal fault for this war. Russia invaded Ukraine. Russia's massacring right. Ukrainians. Uh, they have to be told, and that's really a gospel precept, stop killing innocent people and vacate territory you legally seized. Now, how do you do that diplomatically? Well, right now, you know, we pray the war is over and we pray, I pray that, you know, Ukraine wins this war and quickly because we don't want to see more people killed and more cities destroyed. Uh, But I'm not a diplomat and, you know, I understand the necessities of the Vatican diplomacy, which is to try to get people to meet and talk. I approve of that. But in in the world, the real world we live in, you know, the only way this ends is that the Russians give up. Mhm yeah no well uh, I it's, it's
0: also I, I the question is and look it was very good of the pope a few weeks ago to confront patriarch kirill the moscow patriarch and uh sort of pull the theological stool from beneath Putin and say, you know, war is always bad, war is always evil, and you can't use God or religion to justify, you know, the mass slaughter of people without provocation. I mean, it's just, it just—it doesn't make sense. And he did make that message in a subtle diplomatic way, but, nonetheless, he did it, and, and that was an important thing for the leader of the Catholic flock to do, I think, in that moment.
1: Amen, I agree 100 percent. And his, his talks yeah. from the balcony on Sundays, same thing. Stop the massacre. Mm -hmm.
0: Pope Francis recorded a video message to the faithful in Hong Kong and mainland China this week. Uh, Bishop Stephen Chow visited uh, the Vatican. He is the uh, bishop of Hong Kong. According to the diocese there, Bishop Chow suggested that the pope give a blessing to the church in China and Hong Kong, which are both facing serious COVID-19 outbreaks, uh, as well as, as you know, Uh, They're being rounded up regularly if they take part in these uh, democracy demonstrations or in any way contradict or contravene the wishes of the Chinese Party. Here is part of the Holy Father's message to the faithful in China. He says here, I wish you to be good citizens, that you are courageous in the face of the challenges of the time. Above all, I'm thinking of many of you who have suffered from the COVID pandemic. I am close to you. Father, what do you make there of the Pope's call that these people who are being, living in this totalitarian regime be good citizens? What does that mean?
1: Well, for the Chinese government, of course, a good citizen means that you do what the Communist Party tells you. Now, the Pope did right. say be courageous, uh, so the good citizen part, In in reality, a good citizen is one who worships God and holds to the truth. And Jimmy Lai, for instance, the Catholic uh, publisher who's currently in prison, Mm. uh, he's a very good citizen. He's the kind of citizen we want. Um, The communist government needs to be more forthrightly challenged. And we've discussed this in the past. The Vatican secret deal with the uh, Chinese government about the appointment of bishops hangs over this like a dark shadow. Uh, The Catholic Church, Mm. unfortunately, has entered into an alliance with a party that's persecuting the Catholic Church. So... Uh, that problem still remains, but you know, my my idea of a good citizen in Hong Kong is Jimmy Lai.
0: Yeah, well, I wish he'd mentioned Jimmy Lai. You know, this is a Catholic man, a media mogul who had the means and the possibility of escaping before he was ever arrested. He stayed because the cause of democracy, the cause of religious freedom as a Catholic was very important to he and his family. Uh, those are the type of martyrs we should be pointing out and 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 uh, turning the, the world's attention to. Uh, but I don't know what good citizens means. in the In the Chinese context, that means shut up and sit down, or we're going to put you in jail. Um, Let let me—I want to switch gears to Nicaragua. Earlier this month, the Vatican was shocked to learn that Nicaragua expelled its nuncio. Archbishop Voldemort Sommertag, had to leave the country suddenly, after it was reported that he and local church leaders made comments critical of the government. The president's a former Marxist guerrilla leader. What does this mean for the faithful of Nicaragua, Father? Having the Pope's representative expelled.
1: This is an insult. You know, Daniel Ortega, who unfortunately is back in power, is someone who has fought the Catholic Church all his career. He's tried to subvert them at different points. Now he's getting confrontational. Uh, sad to say, communists do repeat behavior all the time which is agree with us, or be imprisoned, be shot, or be exiled. This is what's going on here. It's an insult to the pope, because he's the pope's representative, and it's an insult to the Catholics of Nicaragua, who, by the way, have suffered so much under the Sandinista regime and the like. Now, just a further example of that. So I pray that Ortega wake up and realize this path path is destructive and insulting.
0: Uh, Father, before I let you go, you have a brand-new book coming out uh, in in just a few days. Uh, It's called Calming the Storm, Navigating the Catholic Church and Society. Tell me about the book. I know it's an interview with Diane Montagna. Tell me about how this came to be, and what was the purpose of the book?
1: Yes, thanks for bringing that up. The book is an interview format with Diane Montagna, uh, Professor Scott Hahn, the famous biblical scholar, had asked Diane and I to do the book. We agreed. And essentially, the book takes us cue from your program, Raymond, which is talk about the world and the church and what's going on and try to analyze it from a Catholic point of view. I think the book fulfills a lot of what Mother Angelic intended uh, by founding EWTN and, and the various outreaches that came from it, publishing and radio and Internet, which is, the Catholic Church has a message that doesn't change, and the Catholic Church's mm. message is God's truth, and God's truth not only brings you personal happiness, it sets you free mm. and promises heavenly rewards. So we're trying to tell people the Church goes through rough waters, the storms that mm. rise can be calm if we turn to the Lord. Hmm, I love that. And that is that really is Mother's mission. Mother's mission
0: was bring the Church into the center of daily lived existence with the truth, and it will transform not only people, but society at large. But you've got to bring the the full package. You can't kind of sugarcoat it or wrap it in odd language. And she did that in such a beautiful way.
1: Absolutely. God bless Mother Angelica's memory. And, you know, EWTN is, understandably, the fruit of her prayer and sacrifice. And that's another thing in the Mm -hmm. book. We tell people, you want to be a faithful Catholic? You have to get ready to suffer, but with the Lord, suffering is redemptive.
0: Mm. Well, we will leave it there. Uh, Father Gerald Murray, a member of the dicastery of the papal posse, uh, thank you for being with us. (laughs) Calming the Storm, Navigating the Catholic Church and Society is available on April 7th. You can find Father's commentary at thecatholicthing.org, and it's a great book, worth your attention. Thank you, Father. Thank you. Russia's assault on Ukraine is now in its fourth week. Russian forces continue to bombard the country, while President Zelensky lobbies nations for aid. U.S. President Joe Biden traveled to Brussels this week to meet with leaders of NATO, the G7, and the E.U. What is the situation on the ground in Ukraine? Here with an update, I'm joined by journalist, global affairs analyst, CNN contributor Michael Bossacue. Michael, thank you. You're joining us from Lviv. Uh, You've been in Ukraine for about a month now. Tell me what the situation is like there, in Lviv.
2: Sure. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, You know, uh, the most uh, graphic uh, kind of picture I could give you right now is, as we're speaking, I'm looking outside my window, and I'm next to a very old and beautiful cathedral. And as we speak, you have construction workers actually boarding up the windows, the beautiful stained-glass windows the reason they're doing that is it's still very much feared that the Russians could attack Lviv, this very uh, old and beautiful city. And this is being played out actually all over Lviv. So um, as much as a lot of people like to think, well, we're already one month into this uh, war and that maybe it will end soon, you know, the, n- no one knows the Russian psyche better than the Ukrainians. After all, they've been in this hybrid war with Russia for eight years now, and um, they're preparing mm-hmm. for the worst. even even with those reassurances that we heard out of Brussels today.
0: Mm. Uh, President Zelensky said this week that the city of Marupol has been reduced to ashes. I mean, we've seen the purposeful destruction of civilian targets by Putin in that city. If Putin intends to take over these major cities in Ukraine, why level them, Michael? What, what is the thinking here?
2: Yeah, well, it's part of the Russian playbook to bomb cities into submission or to level them. And to to our minds, it doesn't make much sense. And, and you know, we can draw comparisons with uh, Aleppo, for instance. But right. the Mariupol is actually a key uh, port city, and it's on the kind of corridor which the Russians want to establish between mainland Russia and Crimea, which they illegally annexed in 2014. So... You know, mm-hmm. whether there are people or not is a drift. But, you know, the other thing, and this isn't often brought up, is that at the same time he's throwing physical weapons, uh, you know, into these populated centers, he's also weaponizing migration. So we're now talking about mm. as many as 10 million displaced inside Ukraine and outside Ukraine's borders. And this is a enormous burden on countries like Moldova, uh, on countries like Poland and others. So... Right. Um, I think it's a deliberate strategy to uh, cause this kind of forced displacement. And one more quick thing. They're also forcibly displacing people into Russia. Many credible reports of people being Mm. forced to board buses into Russia proper, and then we don't hear from them again.
0: Mm, Yeah, no, that—we don't often think about that and how, you know, he's hollowing out the population in Ukraine, so it becomes much easier to take it over. But, as you say, weaponizes uh, uh, refugees by by placing such burden on the surrounding countries. Do you fear that the type of attacks we're seeing in Mariupol, in other places as well, targeting apartment complexes, children's hospitals, that that could be repeated throughout Ukraine, in these other cities, including the one you're in tonight?
2: Yeah, well, that's, of course, the big fear. Uh, And, you know, right now where I sit, there is about 200,000 internally displaced people here seeking shelter. Uh, These are people who have chosen not to go beyond Ukraine's borders. I think what we're going to see is more of a concentration on the uh, east, uh, central, and southern cities of Ukraine. That seems to be their focus at the moment, Um, Mm -hmm. especially, as as we mentioned, Mariupol, but also Kherson and Kharkiv, which is... uh, the second biggest city and it's closest to the Russian border is also being pummeled. Um, so it, it does raise the question of, you know, the final intent of this terrible bombing. You know, what use are these hollowed-out cities going to be to him? It's it's a horrible, mm-hmm. horrible way, and of course, all of the war crimes uh, being committed in the process process as well.
0: Right, now, Michael. I want your take on something I'm hearing predominantly in the American media, uh, television networks. I've even seen it in some periodicals that Ukraine is winning this war. That uh, you know they've killed 47,000 Russian soldiers and that they are winning this battle. It's only a matter of time. Your thoughts on that, as somebody who studied this region, been there, and now now mm. been embedded there for a month. I mean. W- w- Just give me your read on that type of reportage.
2: Yeah. Yeah, well, I hosted a Twitter Spaces yesterday, and uh, we had, uh, as part of it, uh, Ilya Ponomarenko, who is one of the most respected war correspondents here. He's with the Kiev Independent. I recommend that people look him up. But um, Mm -hmm. that question was put to him, whether, you know, Ukraine is winning the war. And I think the sentiment was that it's definitely doing a lot better than expected. Uh, There— Holding on to territory, mm-hmm. they're repelling Russians away from uh, you know pockets like uh, Kiev, where they're encircling the Russians. So, but a lot of this, of course, is uh, the training that's happened over the years from Western partners, but also the new kit coming in. Um, for example, the right. U.S. is providing Switchblade uh, armed drones or kamikaze drones. So this will give them a much bigger upper leg. But then, you know, if Mr. Putin uh, decides to uh, retaliate with chemical weapons, biological weapons, or God forbid, nuclear uh, weapons, uh, all mm-hmm. of that isn't uh, going to be of much help. And uh, again, they could resort to more use of those long range, including hypersonic missiles that right. are virtually impossible to destroy in the air. So we, this, this um, still has a long way to play out, unfortunately. And, uh, and I fear, yeah. and many others fear more death and destruction.
0: Yeah, and, and he can fire missiles from Russia. He doesn't even have to come into into Ukraine to do that. And yes, it's apparent he has, uh, he's he willing has. to reduce these yeah. cities to rubble.
2: Yeah, there, many of the missiles have come from Russia, but also uh, from the Black and Azov Seas and from uh, right. high-flying aircraft. Uh, some of the aircraft fly at about 50,000 feet, so you're not going to hit that from a backpack, hmm. uh, you know, surface-to-air missile. Uh, and that's why... Logically, the Ukrainians are calling for a no-fly zone, or at least more of those Mm -hmm. MiG jets from places like Poland.
0: Yeah. Uh, President Joe Biden, as we reported earlier, landed in Brussels on Wednesday for this urgent meeting uh, with members of NATO, the G7 European Union. Prior to leaving, he was asked by reporters if he was concerned that Russia would use chemical weapons. He answered this way. I think it's a real threat. Uh, do you think Russia will use chemical weapons, Michael, in Ukraine? I mean, I, I have to tell you, just as somebody who's been covering uh, global affairs like you for a long time, I, I'm I'm feeling a bit of Saddam Hussein flashbacks here. I have to say.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, you look. They've used them elsewhere. They've used other uh, weapons against uh, populated centers in places like Chechnya. Um, this um, one of the types of missiles they're using. Um, is actually a technology that it, it lands and you know gives up big bursts of air and can destroy internal organs. I mean this is the type of stuff they're using. So I, I, I believe he could, he has the ability. There actually are reports of uh, phosphorus already being used um, in the east of Ukraine. And you know I, I just read that NATO said it's going to be bolstering its defenses against chemical, biological and nuclear attacks. But I didn't hear the word Ukraine come in that into that paragraph. What are they going to do to for Ukraine to better defend itself against these weapons? Um, I, I got to say, the Ukrainians feel in many aspects very much alone uh, in this war
0: hmm The U.S. and Europe have placed heavy sanctions on Russia. They've sent military aid to Ukraine. But the sanctions don't seem to be deterring Russia. What do you hope comes out of these Biden meetings with NATO members? I know you've had some concern yeah. about uh, Biden's leadership of the allies here.
2: Right. Yeah, you know, uh, President Zelensky of Ukraine was begging, literally begging for those sanctions to be implemented even before hostilities began. But the West didn't do that. They waited until hostilities began. I think that was a mistake. And um, yes, these are very serious sanctions. And I think, you know, as a Western um, community of you know like-minded and democratic nations, we should be getting to the point or arrived at the point where if you're a Russian oligarch or part of Mr. Putin's circle, the only place you're going to be able to go vacation is Pyongyang in North Korea, or maybe those artificial islands that Chinese are making in the South China Sea. Uh, but they still have to get, yeah, yeah, where it rarely goes below like 80 degrees Fahrenheit. But, um, you know, they still have to get countries uh, like Turkey, uh, the Gulf states on board to also, uh, you know, freeze out or block uh, Russian oligarchs uh, from coming there. But, um Uh, You know, um, uh, the Russians have uh, installed quite the sophisticated blackout for news. They're spreading a lot of false propaganda. A lot of folks in Russia don't know what's going on. And, you know, they've also uh, arrested uh, reportedly tens, uh, way over 10,000 people so far. So uh, I don't, a lot of people say, well, maybe the sanctions will drive Russians to the point where they're going to revolt. But there's not much of a tradition for that in Russia. And even if they do. Those institutions, KGB and so on, are so entrenched that uh, it's you know very 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 difficult to do.
0: Hmm. This week, Ukrainian President Zelensky renewed uh, calls for peace talks with Russia, but so far, uh, Putin has refused. Uh, Russia sought assurances from Ukraine that they'll renounce plans to join NATO, a demand Kiev seems to be willing to agree to. Uh, Putin has accused the U.S. of using Ukraine to threaten Moscow. Uh, he's also justified the invasion, saying Moscow was defending against the genocide of Russian speaking people by Ukraine. Now, Ukraine naturally says Putin's claims of genocide are nonsense. Is Russia at all interested, Michael, in peace with Ukraine? And what is Putin's
3: endgame here?
2: <sighs> Great questions. Um, so, I, I think in terms of the peace talks, I think uh, what we've seen play out over the past eight years since the Russians invaded the Donbass and took Crimea, is that they they do um, kind of show and tell. They'll show up at these talks, they'll promise certain things, and then they won't uh, deliver what they promise. We've seen so many ceasefire uh, agreements that have only lasted perhaps a few hours, and then they go back to regular business of fighting and killing. So um, there's a lot of, um, there would be a lot of pressure on Mr. Zelensky should he enter into direct peace talks with Mr. Putin. Right now, I believe they're talking about Israel as being a broker of that peace agreement. But um, I, I think what's going to happen, you asked about the end game, is Mr. Putin's going to demand concessions that no Ukrainian president could uh, ever agree to. What I mean by that is recognizing Crimea as Russian, the Donbass, um, guaranteeing that they're not going to pursue NATO membership, uh, and also what happens to the territory that's been seized in the past month. So. It's going to be very, very difficult for Mr. Zelensky to go into these peace talks, and he's also floated the idea of a referendum on certain aspects, but these are very difficult things to do when you have a war going on, an active war, and when you have almost 10 percent of the Ukrainian—sorry, almost a quarter of the Ukrainian population displaced.
0: Wow. You know, as you just mentioned, uh, uh, 3.5 million Ukrainians have left their country. And these are, again, estimates. Uh, it's probably much higher. And there are now refugees living in the nearby countries, over 2 million in Poland. Yep. However, there are 6.5 million internally displaced Ukrainians. Where, where are they going predominantly, Michael?
2: Well, actually, a lot of them—most of them are here in the West, because it's regarded as a safe mm-hmm. haven. Uh, here right. in the field, but also in, in smaller towns and villages. And I know, for example, there are great NGOs uh, like the Ukrainian Educational Platform, people can look them up, that are helping mm-hmm. to um, establish inclusive communities for, you know, the kind of semi permanent housing that folks can go and move in and lead as normal mm-hmm. life as they can until things subside. Because don't forget, I mean, you have cities like Mariupol, you have cities like Kharkiv that have really been heavily destroyed. So it's going to take some time for them to go back to where they came from. Um, look, the other thing I, I have to say is that a lot of the uh, folks I've talked to who have gone to Poland and neighboring countries, I don't get the sense that that came to going far away, Canada and the U.S. Uh, the U.S. has just announced 100 um, spaces for 100,000 refugees. Yeah, yeah. and um, you know, I, I've talked to refugees, for example, applying to enter Canada. They, too, have a special program. You have Impossibly long lineups at the Canadian embassies, the UK embassy. They're asking for things like biometrics. You know, you're not going to get mm. that on the border or in a small village in Poland. So I don't want to say that these are intentional bottlenecks to, uh, you know, make the flow smaller, but they have to make it easier on people. A lot of them came with just maybe a duff, duffel bag if they're lucky. A lot of them mm. fled without even their documents. So Yeah, I'm I'm shocked by the bureaucratic barriers that are still there, too.
0: Hmm. Um, uh, Ukraine is full of churches, Michael, both Orthodox and Catholic. What kind of help are churches and religious organizations able to offer at this point?
2: Yeah, well, um, I'm, I'm basically in the city of churches. There's one, as I said, right below me. And I was there on Sunday. And while the air sirens were wailing across the city, the churches were packed. Uh, And I, you know, I've never seen such intensity and sense, concentration and devotion. Um, Every word the priest was saying to to bring some kind of comfort uh, really resonated. I I think um, churches here, um, you know, they can provide refuge, but it's mostly temporary. Uh, you, You know, we have Catholic and Orthodox here. So uh, but they're usually not that well resourced. Uh, They're going to also require quite a bit of financial support in order to be to help these refugees. But of course, they're very well placed to do it. And the other thing I should say, even pre-war, a lot of Ukrainians don't didn't have much trust in the government. So it's going to be up to faith leaders as well to not only comfort people, but to give them advice on what to do and where to go, that sort of thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Pope Francis is consecrating Ukraine and Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary this week. How do you think uh, the people in Lviv feel about that, and how is their faith sustaining them through this, Michael?
2: It's hard to, for me to answer the first question, because I haven't spoken to anyone about that. But in terms of the faith, um, like that vignette net I told you about just on Sunday, uh, and, and also the previous Sundays as well, is that people will— uh, choose in many cases to go to a church rather than to a bomb shelter uh, for protection. So that gives you an idea of where, you know, the, the, look, um, Ukrainians have traditionally been very, very strong believers. They turn to the church for many, many things, especially in times of famine, in terms of war. And then also, you know, we, we, the Ukraine has a long history of the church being persecuted, um, priests killed, shot down by the, by the Soviets and sent to the gulag. So, it's been a church that has been uh, very much um, persecuted in the past, but it always kind of, you know tends to spring back and go underground if need be as well. So um, you know there is a very active uh, very active monasteries and seminaries here. a few miles away from me is the Ukrainian Catholic University, which does fantastic work and also requires a lot of donations too. So there is a huge um, kind of Christian infrastructure here to help folks.
0: MICHAEL BASICU, THANK YOU SO MUCH FOR BEING WITH US, FOR YOUR INSIGHTS. YOU CAN FOLLOW MICHAEL'S REPORTING ON TWITTER AT World Affairs PRO. MICHAEL, THANKS AGAIN. BE SAFE. MARK YOUR CALENDARS. THERE'S A VERY SPECIAL EVENT COMING UP, AND I'LL BE THERE, AT THE TOP OF APRIL AT THE CINCINNATI MEN'S CONFERENCE. IT TAKES PLACE ON SATURDAY. April 2nd, in Cincinnati. This is going to be at the the arena, at the University of Cincinnati, thousands of men coming together. You should be a part of this. I'll be one of the headline speakers, joined by actor Jim Caviezel and special guest stars. The theme is, Evil Prospers When Good Men Do Nothing. And it's really a conference for all men. Regardless of faith, it's going to be a fun, spiritually uplifting day, a great opportunity to bond with your friends or your sons. I hope you'll come out. For tickets and more information, visit CincinnatiMensConference.com. My next guest is the author of seven number one New York Times bestsellers, you may recall, Tuesdays with Maury, which spent four straight years atop the New York Times list. Mitch Albom's latest novel, The Stranger in the Lifeboat, explores the question of belief in God after a yacht explosion leaves a small group of survivors drifting between life and death in a raft. I want to welcome Mitch Albom to the program. Thank you for being here, Mitch. Uh, The the plot of your novel—and I've read the book—it sounds luxurious at the start. A billionaire, Jason Lambert, invites some of the world's richest and influential people uh, to cruise on his mega-yacht. Then this mysterious explosion occurs, leaving ten disparate souls on a lifeboat. Where did the notion for this idea, this plot, arise from in you?
3: Well, uh, thank you for describing the plot so well. Uh, the truth is that for all of my books, I don't really start with plots. I start with a concept, and the concept was mm. asking for help. Uh, I, I've had to ask for help in my life, and I talk, I'm talking about big help, you know, when we want help from God yeah. or the universe— and uh, it seems to me that when we ask for help, we frequently expect it to arrive like we're ordering a deli sandwich, like better be here in five <laughs> minutes and it better be what I ordered and be very specific. <laughs> but I've lived long enough now to find out that help often doesn't look like what you expected it to look like or come when you expect it to come. And so this idea, I wanted to tell a story that could do that. And I said, well, what, what's the most desperate situation I could think of? A life raft out in the middle of the ocean, 10 people, Three days, nobody's coming for them. They're running out of food. They're running out of water. They see sharks, and they're calling out for help the way we all do. And then all of a sudden, they see this man floating in the water, a body, and they pull him in. It's this young guy, very nondescript, average-looking guy. They pepper him with questions. He doesn't talk. And finally, one of the passengers says, well, thank the Lord we found you. And he says, I am the Lord. (laughs) And that becomes the fulcrum of the whole story.
0: Yeah, no, and it, it, it's a shocking moment when, when that comes. What were you after there? I mean, obviously, it, it's, it's to shock not only the, the characters in the, in the novel, but the reader. I mean, it, it, as you said, help sometimes comes not in the form you expected.
3: Right. Well, I mean, you say, what was the, what was the point of that? I'll ask you. When, when you read that line, what was the first thought that came into your mind?
0: Well, the first thought for me was, wait a minute is this Jesus? Who is this guy? What? what where exactly. did this come from? Is
3: he, is he or isn't he? And that becomes the question. Mm-hmm. And here these are these people calling out for help, and yet they look at this guy and they say, oh, come on, you know, you're, you're not the Lord, you know, look at you. And and he said, they say, if you're the Lord, what are you doing here? He says, well, haven't you been calling me? And then they say, well, so what, you're here? They're very cynical. They say, you think you're here to save us? And he says, well, I can only save you if everyone in this boat believes I am who I say I am at the same time. Mm-hmm. And that sets up yeah. this, this you know, this equation of like, well, if you want help, you're going to have to actually believe it. it might come in a form other than a big cruise ship that comes along and throws you a line or, or an airplane mm-hmm. that comes. It might actually be this guy. And most of them, of course, don't believe it. And as the days go on and things get more desperate and terrible things start happening, some of them change their mind.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, Mitch, you have a talent in all your work for incorporating matters of faith uh, so seamlessly into the writing, and it really allows readers to be intrigued and ponder those difficult questions that I think we all, at some level, want to avoid. Uh, I want to read something from the end of the novel, uh, and it really speaks to what you were just talking about. In the end, there is the sea and the land and the news that happens between them. To spread that news, we tell each other stories. Sometimes the stories are about survival, and sometimes those stories, like the presence of the Lord, are hard to believe, unless believing is what makes them true. Now, that, that's so powerful. Um, in your estimation, have we lost belief? Have we as a people lost faith or the ability to see it?
3: I, I, I think, Raymond, we've replaced it. Uh, We've replaced it in many cases with ourselves. We've replaced it with a culture that celebrates us, and we can do everything. And, uh, you know, it's not an accident that church and synagogue and other religious affiliation uh, uh, membership was steady throughout the whole 20th century, uh, right around 70-some percent. And then right around 2000, it started to sink. And right now, it's about 47 percent, a massive drop. Well, what happened in 2000? The internet, and suddenly we were able mm. to celebrate ourselves globally. We were able to tell people we have three hundred million followers. Even even think of that phrase, <laughs> followers. We've got followers. <laughs> right. You know that used to be reserved for for pretty pretty high level people from the Bible who had followers. Right. And now we all have followers. And so. I don't necessarily think we've lost belief because I see many people who get to the end of their lives, even lives that have been led very perhaps egotistically and suddenly they get sick or something bad happens. And suddenly they're saying, please, God, help us. Please God help us. Which is kind of the, one of the tenets uh, uh, of the stranger in the lifeboat that, you know, how come you're always calling out for help only when you're only when things are really, really terrible, that's when you choose to believe. Right. But I do think we've substituted it with a culture of, of ego. And, um, you know, that's why the guy in the book who throws the party is one of the richest men on the planet. He has everything he could possibly mm-hmm. want. And suddenly he's in a life raft with the cook and the deckhand and, uh, and and a guy who claims to be the Lord. And suddenly all his money and all his power don't make any kind of difference, even though he keeps Worthless. thinking, oh, they're going to come after me because I'm so important. They're going to come save me. But nobody does.
0: Yeah. No, you wrote, you wrote an excellent piece in the De- Detroit Free Press recently, and it was just about this, uh, the, you know, the loss of faith, the replacement of ego and social media. So I'm glad we, we touched on that. And that piece is worth reading, by the way, I, I should tell the viewers. Uh, there are two characters in the novel who are Haitian, Mitch, uh, which I found fascinating, because I know the country of Haiti is dear to you. Uh, in fact, some of the earliest readers of this book were teenagers at the Have Faith Haiti orphanage in Haiti. Uh, And you met a very special little girl named Chica uh, after the devastating earthquake in 2010 at that orphanage. Uh, You and your wife ended up adopting her. You wrote a book about it uh, called Finding Chica, A Little Girl, An Earthquake, and the Making of a Family. Now, initially, your intention was not to adopt her. How has Chica changed your life?
3: Well, in every way, Raymond. Uh, I went to Haiti in 2010 just as an observer, and within a couple months I had taken over an orphanage, which I now operate and I'm at every single month of my life. I have been for now 12 straight years. We have 54 children there that we raise and take care of from from their earliest days all the way on up, all the way through college, and we put them through college. And Chica came to us uh, a couple years into that. And uh, for a couple of years, she was the, the loudest, brashest, youngest kid we had. And then at age five, she developed a brain tumor and we brought her to America mm. uh, to try to find a cure for her, figuring we would it wouldn't take any time at all. She was only five. How bad could it be? And it turned out she never went home. It was a terrible uh, stage four thing. And we ended up adopting her and traveling around the world for two years, trying to find mm. a cure. And unfortunately, uh, nobody survives what she had. It's called DIPG. But she did live two years when they gave her four months. And those two years changed our lives in every single way. And really, I wrote the book Finding Chica kind of in the pain of after losing her. I wrote Stranger in the Lifeboat in the sort of healing after it. And I mentioned to you that one of the themes was asking for help. Well, you know, when, when Chica died... Uh, I was quite angry with the world and God, you know, and the whole idea about, you know, how can you be a benevolent God and not be benevolent to a seven-year-old girl who had to endure an earthquake three days into her life, you know, and lost her mother and was an orphan. And and now you give her a brain tumor and now she dies. Um, And there's a moment in the book where, if you read it, then you know, that is, of course, it's a character in the book, but it is essentially me, where one of the characters Mm -hmm. in in the boat says to this Lord character... Why do people have to die? And he's crying. And he's talking about his wife. You know, why did you take my wife? And the response is, uh, well, why is it that when people die on earth, we always say, why did God take them? Maybe a better question would be, why did God give them to us? What did we do to deserve their sweetness, their love, their memories? Didn't you have that with your wife? And he said, well, I had it every day. And the Lord character says, well, those memories are a gift, but their absence is not a punishment. I'm not cruel. This world, I know you before you're born. I know you after you die. You, you, things don't begin and end with this world. I know that you cry when your loved ones leave this earth, but I can assure you they're not crying. And I wrote mm. those sentences as much as a, as a salve for me uh, to try to get over the fact that, you know, okay, maybe maybe Chica wasn't taken from us. Maybe she was given to us. My wife and I had her come into our lives when we were in our mid-50s. We had never had children of our own. We had wanted to. It was a prayer that we thought was unanswered at the time. Fifteen years later, here comes this beautiful five-year-old girl and gives us all the joy that you get of being parents and waking us up and asking us for breakfast and making jokes and you know laughing and giggling and singing and putting her hand over my mouth whenever I wanted to sing with her and all those kinds of things. And who were we to deserve that? In our fifties, so instead of suddenly saying, "Well, why did you take her away?" maybe the better question would be, "Thank you for giving us even the time that we had." and And mm-hmm. I hope that mm-hmm. that's of a comfort to people who read *The Stranger in the Lifeboat* who have lost people in their own lives.
0: Yeah. No, that—you that, know, I was going to ask you, how did that experience with Chica shape you or prepare you to write uh, The Stranger in the Lifeboat? Because, to me, it, it, it was—you uh, know, I lost a few friends over the last few months, and some of them were very dear to me. And it did—it it, it put those lives in perspective and the gratitude we should have, not only to God, but for each other. And I thought the book— crystallizes that, and so many other things. I, I was really touched by it, Mitch. What's been the reaction? I know you've been on tour. Uh, what are you hearing from people?
3: Uh, this has actually been the most successful book uh, of my last four or five. Uh, it, uh, wow. and, and it's odd because you don't get to promote things quite the same way with COVID. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, you know, this, this is gonna have to sort of sink and swim on its own because you can't go anywhere. <laughs> you know, We're doing Zoom calls, mm-hmm. but uh, that's about it. But uh, it came out at number one on the New York Times list and the Amazon list, and it's it's remained up high there ever since. And and I'm I'm so pleased because it reinforces the idea that you know faith and the idea of faith. And it's not a dogmatic book. It doesn't tell you you've got to no, believe this out of the. But it's certainly explores the idea of, of faith in God and there are so many people who seem afraid to even touch that topic I can tell you Raymond even the concept of writing this there were a lot of people in the business that hey maybe you want to try something I said no uh-huh. I, I you know I, I live out in the Midwest and everybody here says God bless you and then people say well God bless you back you know no matter where, no matter right. what they might feel and, and I think there are a lot more people like that in America than maybe some of the coasts tend to kind of view it as like, no, we, we, we have to stay away from anything that could have to do with faith because that might offend somebody. Uh, I, I, I think there's still a lot of people who want to believe that we are not just here to be worm food at the end of our lives and and want to explore mm-hmm. those ideas. So I was, I was thrilled with the reception. I, I am still. It continues to be very strong.
0: Yeah. No, Mitch, I, I think you've tapped into the reality that there are a lot of people seeking. There are a lot of people hurting and asking the same questions we all ask. And I love that this book points people to, the, to some answers and gives them a sense of calm and peace uh, when it's over. So thank you for writing it. Thanks for coming on. It's a real pleasure and an honor to have you on the show. I've, I've long loved your books and your columns. Thank so thanks. Uh, the Stranger in the Lifeboat, the new novel by Mitch Album, is available at bookstores everywhere and online. Help keep it number one. Thanks, Mitch. We'll have you on again, I hope.
3: You're welcome. Thank you. Sure.
0: That is all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thank you for watching. I'm Raymond Arroyo. I know you